Hi, I'm Walter Harvey, the senior pastor at Parklawn Assembly of God. Parklawn is a church that both regular attenders and even unchurched people love to attend. Why? Perhaps it's because we seek real and authentic relationships. We're a multicultural church that's engaged in volunteerism and outreach in our community and world. Let's face it, we live in a real world. Young people are facing challenges in their school, relationships, and career choices. That's why we're focused on practical matters, such as making faith work in family, career, and community issues. If you're tired of church as usual, or you don't go to church at all, then Parklawn Assembly of God could be the perfect place for you. Come check it out this weekend. We have services each Sunday morning at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. Parklawn Assembly of God is located at 3725 North Sherman Boulevard, right in the heart of the city of Milwaukee. You can contact us by phone or on the web at either 414-442-7411 or at www.parklawn.org. I hope to meet you soon. So my assignment this morning is to talk about reformation. Can you say reformation? So let's go to Acts chapter 11. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 11, I am going to read for you a verse out of Mark chapter 14. Acts 11, and while you're turning there, I want you to just listen to the words that were spoken by our Savior, which says, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Would you say reformation? The word reformation means to change in order to improve. It means to change for the better. Reformation. In 2017, the church celebrated the 500th year of what's known as the Protestant Reformation. You see, on October 31st, 1517, there was a German priest who immersed himself in the word and began to say that there are things that we practice ecclesiastically that are inconsistent with what the scriptures say. So he documented 95 of his observations and created what's known as the 95 Thesis that address institutional and hierarchical discongruity between the scripture and the church. And to sum all of it up, he says that the church should not be institutional and hierarchical. It needs to be personal and intimate. God is not someone far. He is someone near. God is not someone that you have to go through someone else to obtain relationship with, but you can have personal relationship with him. And thus was born the Protestant Reformation. 
The thing about the Protestant Reformation is Luther never wanted or intended to start something new. Reformation is not about starting something new. Reformation is about seeing what God is doing and joining him in that work. Another reformation that I would personally uh, like to present this morning is what I would call the holiness reformation. So we went for a season where uh, from uh, Luther's reformation came all of the expressions of the Protestant church. And then in England, there was this priest, John Wesley, and his brother Charles, who began to gather people together. And they noticed that though God had become personal and intimate, now he'd become common and regular. So there was need for reformation. And Wesley said, though God is near and close and intimate and personal, watch this, you cannot just live any kind of way and just be any kind of person and just do whatever you want just because God is near and intimate and personal. You need to be have a life that is holy, have a life that conforms, have a life of character, have a life of integrity, have a life that pleases him. So Wesley took a strong stance against drinking, strong stance against alcohol, strong stance against public carousing because he said these things are inconsistent with what the scriptures teach us about God desiring a holy people. It was funny, my wife and I had opportunity when she was uh, doing her uh, graduate work and we took a pilgrimage to uh, Wesley's childhood home. And I took a picture of it, and, and somewhere just from between moving and everything, that picture was lost. But outside Wesley's house is a placard, and the placard reads this. This historic site is maintained from revenues generated by the uh, English Gambling Association. I told my wife, I said, Wesley would be rolling over in his grave if he knew that his childhood home was being preserved by the proceeds that come from lottery. Another reformation I'd like to talk about is the Pentecostal Reformation. That was born at the turn of the 20th century in Azusa Street, led by a man by the name of William Seymour. Bishop Seymour was the most unlikely candidate to become the leader of a reformation. He was blind in one eye, uneducated. He was the child of slaves. But God began to work in this man's life because of segregation and separation and Jim Crow. While his white counterparts learned in the classroom, he had to sit in the hallway and his teacher had to prop the door open and he had to hear what the others were encountering and engaging with but wouldn't you know just like God the Lord poured out his spirit and anointing upon William Seymour and he moved to California and began to preach a message about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues and it became the worldwide uh, revival that broke out that has not stopped that all of us are still a part of that reformation. Please note the following. Reformation does not imply that something bad needs to change into something good. 
Reformation rather means something that is great can be made greater. That God always has a pathway to take us from what faith we have to even greater faith. From the grace that we have experienced into even greater grace. From the strength that we already have into greater strength. From the glory that we've already experienced into greater glory. Reformation does not mean that God is not is necessarily displeased with what is, but reformation means God is always up to doing new things. Reformation, by its very nature, watch this, means we have to change. I can't help myself, I just got to be me. Touch your neighbor and tell them change. And change, my brothers and sisters, is disruptive. Change is disorienting. Change is daunting. When things are run a certain way, when things progress in a natural order, when things move forward in a way that I have grown accustomed to. And then God comes and messes my world up and tells me everything's got to change. I have a good friend, Dr. Don Brawley, who is a leadership strategist and a church consultant. And, and we began a journey when my wife and I invited him to come do some consulting for us. And it, it started out very transactional. And now Don is like a, a blood brother to me. He's a, he's a friend. He's a partner. He's, a, he, he, he's somebody that I have to keep in my life. And, and Don, when we were going through the process of consulting and, and change, even at our local church, he says, Bishop, never forget, change happens in a moment. Yeah, one moment. It's a child in the womb. The next, it's, it, that child has a birthday. See, change happens, and it can be marked by day and date and time. And many times, change often happens outside of our control. Some of the changes that we have to deal with are out of our control. We have no control over the change. But he said, the thing that we struggle with, Bishop, is not change. The thing that we struggle with is transition. What do you mean transition, preacher? Transition is the spiritual, emotional, mental, physiological, psychological, financial, relational impact to what happened in the change. Let me point this out in my, in my life, do some good postmodern preaching and tell you a story from the contextualization of my own life. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, I, I come from a very small family. Uh, my uh, grandmother, uh, grandparents only had two children, my mother and her aunt, my, my aunt Betty. My aunt and my mother were 12 years apart, so... Aunt Betty became like another little mother to my mother. And my mom was a young mother. She was 16 years old when she got pregnant with me. And so Aunt Betty was, we, we called her Aunt Betty, but she was like a, more like a grandmother of sorts to us. 
And, and when our grandparents died when we were young, and, and then Aunt Betty just became our life. And so my mother bought a house in Cleveland, and, and a house across the street became open. And so she said, I want to move your aunt back here because at this point my aunt had worked for United Airlines, retired and lived in California. And she said, you know, she's 12 years older than I am. And, and I would hate to get a phone call one day that somebody found her in our house. She's passed away. If she gets sick, we got to figure it out how to do it. I'm trying to get Aunt Betty back here now. And so as Providence would have it, Aunt Betty brought this house right across the street from my mother. So whenever I pulled up on Greencroft Road, I would look to the left, there's my mother's house. Look to the right, there's my Aunt Betty's house. And sometimes how life has it, change happens that we cannot control. My mother ends up dying before her sister. April 14, 2008, my mother died 57 years old. Still going to ask God about it when I get to heaven. Because if you start doing the math, she's been dead 11 years, she had me at 16, 57 don't look that far away now. So I would pull down the street, look to the left with sadness, because there was a reminder that what was is no longer. To the point, in the beginning, I would not even look there. I would literally, when I would drive my car to go visit my aunt, I would turn my back as I was coming down the street so I wouldn't have to see my mother's house and know that she wasn't there. See, it wasn't a change. I knew that April 14, 2018, my mother died. That was the change. I was still dealing with the transition. I was my mother's pastor. I preached her funeral. So for years, seven years, we went back on green crawl. I had to come to grips with the fact that my mother was not there. I remember the day I pulled up when I saw someone else standing on her front porch. Transition. And then March 10, 2015, I bet he passes away. And after we got all her affairs in order and got the house emptied and got it sold and everything, and we, the last time I pulled away, I told my wife with tears in my eyes, I said, I never have another reason to ever come back down this street ever again. See, believers, it's not so much as change as our problem. It's transition. So this morning, I want to just take you very quickly from the text of Acts 11 and show you one of the monumental changes that God does in the church. The church is young. It's, er it, it, it's early in the church's history. And I want to show you what God did in a reformation where change happens. And I want to show you the five-step process God utilized to bring about the first reformation to his church. The five steps are the following. Number one, preparation. Say preparation. Number two, frustration. Number three, activation. Number four, demonstration. And number five, reformation. Acts chapter 11 starts out by telling us now the apostles and the brothers were 
throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. This was status quo breaking. This had never happened before. They had the testimony of Peter's encounter with Cornelius, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But here, for the first time, people in mass, Gentiles, are coming to know Christ. Henry Blackaby, in his incredible book called Spiritual Leadership, talks about moving people on the God's agenda, and he says, find out what God is doing, find out where God is working, find out where the Spirit is moving, and work along with him. There was preparation. You see, there was a ground swell that the Lord was doing through his divine sovereignty. Acts chapter 9, we read of the dramatic salvation experience and transformation of the Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, who was leading persecution against the church, who now has an encounter with Christ and gets saved and surrenders his life to the Lord and gets called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. Acts chapter 10, we have the vision that Peter has when he visits the house of Cornelius of the sheep that came down. And I know the Bible says it had all these creepy things. Let me tell you what Peter saw. Peter saw smothered pork chops and crab legs and pork fried rice. And the Lord told him, Peter, I prepared a bounty for you to eat. He said, Lord, I don't eat this stuff. The Lord said, eat it. No, 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 nothing unclean. And the Lord said, don't you dare take what I have cleaned and call it unclean. What was the problem? The problem was not Peter eating pork fried rice. The problem was that's how Peter saw people. They're the clean and the unclean. They're those that God favors and those that God loves and those that God have chosen. And then there's everybody else. And God had to help Peter realize that if you're going to lead the church, you cannot have a heart that's out of alignment with my heart because my heart is to see the nations come. I've been immersing myself in this whole multi-ethnic conversation as I'm writing this dissertation. And it's, it's helping me see scriptures in a way I've never seen them before. For example, let me tell you, and this is just for free. This is part of my, part of my note. Jesus cleanses the temple. How do we usually say that? We usually say it. Jesus takes a whip, goes in, and what does he say? My father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you turn it into what? Den of thieves. Thank God for Sunday school. I believe it's Mark. Mark says, Jesus took the whip, walked in and says, my house should be a house of prayer for the nations to gather. Uh Uh-oh. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. See, the difference is, if it's a house of prayer, then it's, it's for us. But if it's a house of prayer for the nations, then that means we got to make room for everybody else. (laughs) 
So Peter was trying to figure out in his heart how to make room for everybody else. And God prepared Peter. But when the Lord starts to prepare us for what he's getting ready to do, it always comes with a certain amount of frustration. It always comes with a certain amount of, I don't think it should happen this way. Hello, somebody. So while God dramatically saves the house of Cornelius, the Bible says in Acts 11, verse 2, that when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. What are you doing going to the house? Of the Gentiles. Let me tell you something. And I hope you don't get mad at me. But I'm getting back on the plane. And, uh, and just this afternoon I'm going back. And Walter's my friend. I know he's going to have me back. Even if you don't like what I say. <laughs> it's my observation. That the greatest enemy. I've had to deal with. Is not the devil. But myself. Now, please don't misunderstand. I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in pleading the blood. I believe in intercessory prayer. That's why I asked my wife to come and pray for you this morning. Uh, I believe in fast. I believe in prayer. I believe in confessing the word. I believe in standing on faith. I believe in resisting temptation. I believe in practicing spiritual discipline. Part of my duty as a pastor is I annually preach upon subject matter dealing with the spiritual battle that we're in. This year I preach ex, uh, expedition, uh, expository set of a series of sermons from Ephesians 6. We note the battle of the Old Testament kings like Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat, the epic tales where David had to face an enemy mightier than him, Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace and how Esther and Mordecai had to deal with Haman. But honestly, saints, the greatest enemy that I've witnessed that we've had to deal with, the hardest enemy to unseat, the most difficult Forced to deal with are not those of hell, but our own reluctance, our own stubbornness to yield to reform that God is trying to give birth to. It's our unwillingness to change, our unwillingness to get with God and to flow with what he's doing. One preacher friend of mine put it this way. He said, Doc, uh, most saints want a miracle of deliverance on Sunday at the altar, but what they really need is to practice spiritual disciplines during the week. So Peter offers some wisdom. He says, first of all, verse 5, I was in a trance. God gave me a vision. This was supernatural. Verse 7 and 8, he says, I heard a voice talk to me, and it was the voice of the Lord. Verse 9, he said, this is what God has done. He said, this happened to me three times, the divine significance, Abraham's three-day journey. Isaiah's vision of the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. Three times, Elijah command the water to be poured on the altar. How many times? Three. When Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead, he stretched himself over the body. How many times? Three times. Jesus said the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, so the Son of Man shall be in the grave for three days. 
Peter says this was a supernatural intervention in which God is at work. Can I tell you right now what God is doing? He is at work. Peter next declares that this is what the Lord is doing in keeping with his plan and his purpose. Peter says in verse 15 that the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he fell on us. The same gift that was given us was given to them. Who are we, Peter says, to stand in God's way? And the scripture said, when they heard these things, the whole place fell silent. And I could just hear, because you know it was Pentecostal. I could just hear somebody say glory. And somebody else say glory. And somebody else said glory. And the Bible says that they all began to glorify the Lord. They all began to rejoice. They began to celebrate because they took their eyes off of themselves and took their eyes off of what they felt like was their own inclusive kind of move and privatization of the move of the Spirit. And they realized that the heart of God is for the nations of the world. So they say, then, yes, God also has granted repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. We're talking about Reformation. Then they took some activation. Say activation. Verse 19 to 20, and I'm coming to my close. It says that they were scattered abroad because of the persecution of Stephen as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Can you say Antioch? Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and they spoke to the Hellenists. Preaching to the, the Lord Jesus. The first intentional evangelization of the Gentiles occurs where? In Antioch, not Jerusalem. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city filled with ethnic diversity. There was Latins and Africans and Greeks and Jews and Asians and Romans. It served as a pivotal point of Christianity. The Jewish historian uh, Josephus stated that Antioch was known as the third queen city of the Roman Empire behind Rome itself and Alexandria. See, at the time, the Jews believed that the, 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 that the global nature of evangelism meant to reach the Jewish people throughout the diaspora with the message that the Messiah had come and that their hope was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But in Antioch, They realized that the gospel was intended for the nations. So questions begin to arise. It disrupts their perspective. It disturbs the status quo as the gospel begins to spread and bear fruit amongst the Gentiles. The Antioch church grows from being the seedbed of evangelism to launching the international movement of mission for the church. Then there was demonstration. Acts 21 through 24 says how that Barnabas went and he saw the grace of God at work in their midst. He saw that God was doing something in the midst of what the Jewish leaders were trying to understand. God was at work. God was moving. God was showing up. God was manifesting himself. Activation had already happened. And so Barnabas went there and he saw the demonstration that the spirit of God was truly at work amongst these Gentiles. And when he saw that, he told them, he said, just stay faithful to the Lord. 
Just cleave to the Lord. Just stay close to him. And then in verse 25 is the declaration. And he turns to the apostle Paul. And he says, Paul, the thing that God has put in your heart. Paul, the thing that you dreamed of. Paul, the thing that the Lord called you to do is happening. It's happening in Antioch. Come and see what the Lord is doing in Antioch. And it says he and Paul went there and they stayed there for one year. Reformation. Say reformation. I'm closing. Acts 13 verse 1 says now there was in the church at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. They ministered to the Lord. They fasted and prayed. And the Holy Ghost said, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. Let me give you five closing things. What the Lord did through the Antioch Reformation. Number one, it was the first place in the New Testament church where that was totally inclusive. Where the Jews and the Greeks and the Gentiles could work together forming the bride of Christ. Number two, it was the first place that the disciples, because all they had been known up until that point, were followers of the way. But this is the place that they were called Christian. In Antioch, it was, it was as though the people of Antioch said, we deal with you, we, we interact with you, and this has got to be what it meant when the Jews dealt with Jesus. We see his joy, we see his love, we see his miraculous power in you. So they called them Christians. This is the first place of the apostolic launch of ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is the first sending outside of Jerusalem. And this is the first place where specifically mentioned is a black man in leadership in Antioch. Simeon called the black man. That's what it says in the original text. Conclusion. Can we stand together? I went through my own reformation recently. Our church, part of my and my wife's assignment, we felt the moment we took over this ministry was to build a new facility. So God helped us in 2010 after a three-year project. We had bought 34 acres of land, 12 of which is beautiful. Buildable, the rest was farmland. We invested in designs and elevations and site plans to build a new facility, and it was $2.5 million, not including the cost of the land. We started a campaign stewardship program in 2006 to help that vision become a reality. April, last year, two years ago, babe, it would have been two last year, two years ago, it was sometime April, it was last year, two years ago, whenever, I got a call from a realtor, he said, Pastor Williams, I said, yeah, he said, I want you to look at the church, I said, man, I'm building, we're getting ready to build a new church, he said, no, Pastor, you got to see this, I called, we went over, we did a walkthrough, my wife and I walked through the building, we said, this would be too small for us. And somehow God fell in that moment. And the Lord gave us the revelation. The building may be too big, but the land that the building is on is big enough for you to build a brand new sanctuary on it. 
We did a feasibility study and found out that by going this route, inheriting the current building and remodeling it, and then building a new sanctuary and office complex, we were going to save the church $1.5 million. Then we had to buy the building. They were selling this building with nine acres of land, flat, buildable land, $400,000. I went to my board. I said, I, I say let's all from three fifty. They said, no, pass off from two fifty. I said, I said, now y'all taking advantage of these people. They said, we well, either they want to sell it or they don't. We put our offer in for two fifty and they took it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, wh what am I saying? Why, why do I tell that story? Do you know what it means to stand before a congregation and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to buy this land. Invest, spend money in planning to build a church on that land. And then you have to change. I said, we're not doing that anymore. God opened up this opportunity for us. You know, my, you know what my fear was? My fear was, number one, would I lose leadership credibility because of the change? Number two, would I lose people who said, you said we were doing this. Now you're saying we're going to do that. And I'm so glad to report to you. And my wife gave me some wisdom. She said, tell them you're going to save a million and a half dollars first. They'll listen to everything else you got to say. <laughs> that right now, our, our new sanctuary is being built right now as we speak. Yeah? Amen. Today... At a time of reformation, you know what the Lord needs us to say? What he said. Not my will. But yours. It's not about me. He said, Father, you can do all things. You can let this cup pass from me. But you know what? If I've learned anything, I've learned that this is not about me. It's about you. Would you lift your hands today? As some of you, God is working some changes in your life. The church is going through a huge transformation, a huge change, a huge shift. But I wonder, would you just tell God, yes. Would you say yes to your plan, Lord? Yes to your purpose. Yes to your agenda. Yes to your will. Yes to your way. Yes to surrender. Yes to whatever you have for us. Because what you have for us is good. Remember. Reformation is never about taking something bad and making it good. Reformation is about taking something that's great and making it greater. Pastor Marcus, would you come? Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you right now for the reformation that you are doing in this house. The shift that you're moving from pastoral leadership to the functions of the apostle and the prophet. Thank you for the transitions that's occurring and God I pray for the grace of God to be bountiful to deal with transition to deal with the sense of grieving of what was but then God I pray for just an anticipation of what will be <laughs> God anticipation that 
You, you're not taking something bad and making it good. You're taking something that's already great and you're making it greater. You're not, you're not shifting because you're displeased. You're shifting because you want to do more. And so, Lord, we lift our hearts and we lift our hands and we lift our voices. Come on, lift your heart and lift your hands and lift your voice and just tell the Lord yes. Come on, tell the Lord yes. Come on, tell the Lord yes. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you in this moment. You know the plans that you have for us. Thoughts that are of good and not evil to give us a future with a hope and expected end. And Lord, right now we agree with that plan. We join in as a partner with you. And we say, Lord, have your way. Thank you, Lord, for doing the work on the inside, in our hearts, in our minds. Thank you for shifting dispositions that we may embrace and walk in fully that which you've called us to. Parkline Assembly of God exists to share the light, life, and love of Jesus Christ. As a part of this mission, join us for special services, workshops, and encounters. Parkline Assembly of God is located at 3725 North Sherman Boulevard, right in the heart of the city of Milwaukee. You can contact us by phone or on the web at either 414-442-7411 or at www.parklawn.org. I hope to meet you soon.